Welcome to episode three of the appropriately titled Cleveland State University Psychology Club podcast. I am Kevin Jaworski, one of your hosts, joined by... I'm Madhwa, um, one, of, one of the second co-hosts. Yeah, and in this episode, we talk to Dr. Elliot Ingersoll, who is the director of CSU's counseling program, and... Uh, he received his Ph.D. in counselor education. His research interests are uh, pretty broad, uh, pharmacology, ego development, spirituality, spiritual interventions, uh, just to name a few. And this was a he also actually gave a TED talk uh, called Mental Health in the Age of Violence back in 2013 as well. And we, we touched on that a little bit. But, yeah, this was a very interesting conversation. The first thing that comes to my mind is um, this conversation seems to be ageless. Uh, when we started talking about this uh, specifically about mental health in the age of violence. And I think we a little bit touched upon that with Dr. Nasser also about the role of mental illness in broader culture. What I found fascinating was talking about the role of psychedelic substances in psychotherapy. Yeah, Dr. Ingersoll um, is is pretty well educated on that. And I think that that's just incredibly fascinating Um potentially, you know, game-changing tool to be used in psychotherapy. Yeah. Uh, another thing that uh, we touched upon, I think, which uh, which would be of interest to some people listening uh, to the podcast would be different types of psychotherapy there are, there are and how um, therapy is not one monolithic thing, but your experience of therapy radically changes depending upon what type of therapy you enter into. So... Yeah, and, I, and we we talked a bit about you know there's four main components that seem to be common across yes. all psychotherapies, and um, yeah, I think that was a uh, another thing that of personal interest to me is uh, we talked a little bit about happiness and how to how do we con- uh, construe happiness and what it is and whether it makes sense to think about um, happiness as a concept in and of itself. Uh, uh, that was that that point personally to hear his opinion on that was I found it personally fascinating a theme we will come back to in a later episode so with nothing further we give you Dr. Elliot Ingersoll one thing I would I'd like to start with is what initially drew you to psychology well so I was going actually well I I had like five majors and I think then toward the end uh, the psych one was the one that was most interesting and I went back to it and then I was actually going to go into the Anglican church uh, priesthood and I was going through candidacy and uh, my mentor was like, you know, you're really interested in the esoteric aspects of spirituality, but you'll be a disaster running a church. You should go into psychology and then look at how that relates because <laughs> his wife was a psychologist. And I was like, OK, that sounds good to me. And then uh, they had just started clinical counseling and that was the master's that I got into from there to get a uh, license to practice. So. Uh what aspects of psychology is something uh, that fascinates you? I'm pretty neophilic, you know, and it's, it's, I think it was Daniel Robinson, the historian of psychology, who said the layperson could be forgiven for assuming that there's no field at all. Anything so broad is like what, how we see in color as to what makes a joke funny. You know, it's all there. So I think initially I got into the clinical piece, this, you know, doing psychotherapy. Hmm. And that was what I imagined myself doing. And then in my doctoral studies, I had a minor in clinical psych because you could get licensed in psychology in those days. 
if you do a create your own curriculum and get it approved by the board and then i took uh psychopharmacology physiology of behavior and i was like wow that's really interesting too so then i got kind of into the psychopharm stuff and uh, looking at the brain and uh, pharmacology and realizing how little we actually know uh, so my interests are pretty broad awesome so there's many different therapies out there all designed to treat mental illness and how can somebody go about making sure that the one that they're that they've chosen is the most effective and are there some treatments that are scientifically more validated than others well i think you know that i can give you a yes to both uh and then the details but you know it's i think we've got of course a great deal of empirically validated treatments but some forms of psychotherapy are easier to assess than others dialectical behavior therapy cognitive behavior therapy they're easier to manualize so everyone's doing a pretty much a similar thing and then it's easier to create dependent measures so that you can get the clients uh, whether they're improving or not but how do you do that with gestalt therapy or a psychodynamic approach it's, it's trickier I think so while I agree we should go for the empirically validated therapies there's a place for things like psychodrama, you know, psychodynamic approaches, or seeing, sometimes with my students, I just say, well, let's start with the common factors. The uh, Heart and Soul of Change was the book that kind of summarized the four common factors of success, successful therapy. So you've got the therapeutic relationship is number one, client strengths is number two, and then placebo or hope, and the last thing is like the actual therapy or technique. So to what extent does your approach rely on the relationship, build the therapeutic alliance? To what extent uh, does the client bring in strengths? I mean, those are the two things you'd want to look for first. But um, certain types of problems are going to require certain types of therapies. Someone who's stuck rationalizing, stuck in their head, so to speak, some experiential stuff really could be good to get them out of their comfort zone and looking at aspects of their life that they haven't looked at so that was a long answer to a succinct question I'm gonna, yeah no no I, I mean I, I would you know take that a step further like specifically looking at the therapeutic alliance like how much does of the variance does that account for um, in those four factors or do we even have an yeah, idea this, or it's like supposedly the greatest amount and the actual percentage is escaping me I I know the the Technique and placebo are 15%. I think relationship was 40%. Client strengths are something like 30%. But the okay. relationship was like the majority. I just want to take a step back here. I mean, since we are into psychotherapy and stuff like that, I just want to start with asking you, what's your definition of a psychotherapy? Like, what's a psychotherapy? Um, um, how would you define that process? Um if there's somebody out there who's not aware of what psychotherapy is or is skeptical about how it works and stuff like that, how would you put it to them? I, I tell my students, if you're stuck in a session, the main job of any talk therapist is to help the client make aspects of themselves or their life objects of psychological awareness. So there's an old Zen joke, koan, that if you're in a dark room, afraid of a black snake, and someone flips on the light, and you see it's just a piece of rope, it's not a snake, light goes off again, well, you're still in the same situation, but with uh, insight. The actual object has become something of visual awareness, yeah. so you're not afraid of it anymore. Yeah. 
when something becomes an object of psychological awareness, it doesn't have the power to latch onto emotion the way it does when it's unexamined. Hmm. It's almost like by making things objects of psychological awareness, we create a little bit of space between experiencing something like a traumatic trigger and the reaction that we have, which is loaded with all sorts of physiological responses as well as emotional responses. Just a little bit of psychological space is enough for the person to then start pushing it further into their field of psychological vision and it becomes less scary. And once you start seeing the dynamics of how it worked on you, you can't unsee them very easily. Mm. For someone who's um, maybe had that experience where they have something has been brought out into the light and maybe they're, you know, um, experiencing difficult emotions around a certain trigger in their life. And um, maybe they've gotten to that insight and they're like, oh, well, this is connected to this thing in my past. And, you know, I can see that now and I can remind myself of that when that happens. But maybe they're still stuck in that. And like they've they have like the intellectual knowledge, but maybe it hasn't you know, completely sunken in, so to speak. Is that, like, what would you say to somebody in that situation? That's why therapy often takes time. So you've got to practice and you've got to keep. I've had clients who had these brilliant insights and they told me the next session, by the time I got to the car, it was gone in the parking lot. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's normal. You're, and you know, I, th I guess from a neurological perspective, you would say you're creating new pathways in the brain and those need to be retraced and retraced and retraced. And that might be a little concrete, but it seems to take practice. And for some people, things click in quicker than others. And sometimes you don't even need to necessarily have reasons. You know, like I got treatment years ago for a, it's a bridge phobia. So I had since I was a kid, terrified going over bridges. And I had just gotten my motorcycle license. And I was like, okay, this is really not a good combination. I should deal with this. And the therapist used a EMDR with the uh, paddles. And it was about three sessions, and I noticed my anxiety going over bridges just dramatically dropped. But I really don't know why. I don't question it too much. I'm like, hey, that was great. It worked. Uh, but in that case, whatever she did helped me enormously, but there was not an insight component to it. Yeah. For, for those listening who aren't aware, what is EMDR? So eye movement desensitization, um, EMD. So on the R. But the idea was Francine Shapiro created it and in talking to clients she started getting the focus on certain eye movements directing them to make these eye movements and she found that they were more easily talking about things that were psychologically threatening. And it was almost like Freud early in his career did a temple push. He put his thumbs on <laughs> clients' temples and had him talk about things. And he said, it worked, but I don't know why, so I'm not going to continue with it. But it's like some people would say attention was directed to a physiological stimuli, stimulus, and that was enough to let down some defenses. And then when they moved to the paddles, the, 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 they're like rhythmically kind of giving you a slight jolt in your hand, but they're kind of going left, right, left, right. And then the therapist changes the speed with which it moves and maybe it is as simple as a physiological stimulus is misdirecting me enough to lower my defenses and there's a new thing they call energy psychology and it's like they do this tapping thing on the forehead it's not at all empirically validated but i'm like well maybe 
it, if it works, it works because of the same reason. Hmm. So there's a lot of competing literature on why it works when it works, yeah, EMDR, um, but no real definitive conclusion as far as I'm not aware. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've read up on it a little bit, but yeah, exactly. It's yeah, there's no definitive conclusion. This thing seems to work for people, though. Um, you know, I wonder if maybe it has something to do with the, the fact that there's stimulus that's going from left to right, and maybe in the um, directing the attention back and forth has something to do with like integrating like pathways between the left and right hemisphere. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a good hypothesis too. So. Uh we would like to take another since we have defined psychotherapy we would like to take another step back here and ask the question how do you define what is mental illness uh, and what what like what is uh, how do we know that uh, a person there are two people and we can kind of gauge if there is a person with mental illness that there is something off about that person as compared to a person who is quote unquote normal so how do we like go about distinguishing people who have certain psychological problems as compared to those who don't and does does that question even make sense it's a tough one yes um so it, you you mentioned my ted talk i talk a little bit about this and all of the disorders we call so-called mental disorders in the International Classification of Diseases and the DSM-5, yeah. we have no etiology. Great theories, <laughs> there's a dozen great theories of why people get depressed, yeah. but we haven't definitively been able to support them consistently to say that we know what causes depression. Hmm. So we start there, and then we have to start with, well, what is a normal mind-brain unit? Yes. And you know, one of my areas is ego development. And in ego development, most of us go from a pre-conventional self, as toddlers, you know, where the two favorite words are mine and no. We go from being kind of a pain in the neck to learning the conventions of society and figuring out how we fit. And then some people grow beyond that to post-conventional where they're, they know what the conventions are. They're not out to break them, but they're also like, well, it's complicated and I wanna look at the context. I wanna understand the relations before I decide what I'm gonna do. From a conventional perspective, a post-conventional personality might look a little off. Hmm. Or like, what? What is that? What are, why are they doing that? So I would say, A, knowing the conventions of one's social group, being able to work within those conventions, and I guess I would say share a consensual reality. I'm using finger quotes hmm. when I say that because it's like, we know there are all kinds of electromagnetic spectrum frequencies we are not aware of right now. There are sound frequencies we're not we're bombarded with them, but we're not aware of them. You know, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Stephen Hawking says there's probably nine dimensions to our universe, not four dimensions, but we only really experience four dimensions. But we evolve in middle world, and so can we learn the folkways of our group, get along with others? We know evolutionarily we need to have social discourse, intercourse. We have to be able to get along, work together. But as I said in the talk, if your group is engaged, believes something that we have falsified, we know if there's a gun in your home, you're actually less safe, not more safe. And yet, is it a shared delusion? So many people insist on believing having a gun in my home will make me safer. You know, that's a folk way. And we can say, 
I understand where the, where that group's coming from, but at the same time, all the studies we've done say, actually, there's more likely that there'll be an accident. Someone else may find it. That person may have a slight period of suicidal ideation and just impulsively act on it. So it's hard to get to that normal question and say, what is normal? Hmm. So that, did I evade your answer successfully or question? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I find it fascinating because uh, I'm a social psychologist and this question of what is normal is f fascinating for me. The more I think about, like, I don't, I don't study people who have mental illnesses. I study people who have, quote-unquote, are normal, healthy individuals, psychologically healthy individuals. But even within them, you do find these biases and tendencies which, if you take a third-person perspective, you would be like, why do they hold these beliefs? like and it it seems like they hold this beliefs just to be normal and somebody who has who is quote unquote is mentally ill has more, more or less time questioned these conventions doesn't know what to uh, has looked past these conventions but has no idea what to do about them so that's what i wanted to see i wanted to see if we can we could flip this thing about what is normal and what is abnormal and um uh, sometimes, like I had a friend who, uh, who had who had bipolar disorder. Um, he's, he was way older than me. Uh, bipolar uh, one, the, the the severe. Yeah. Oh, okay. And he was brilliant, and he used to keep questioning the conventions, and I found him fascinating. But other people found him irritating, and these were the normal people. Uh, so that's uh, that's what personally I would say uh, got me into thinking about like what is normal what is abnormal what can I study and more I study normal people more I think about the belief systems they hold the more I think that these belief systems uh, they kind of act as a shield to protect people against uh, problems um, uh, which probably they're not uh, strong enough to hold if they just let go of these beliefs so I just thought I would get as a psychotherapist I would get your perspective on that I really love, remember the Solomon Ash study? Yes. So like he's got these lines, yeah. it's clear, one is different. Yes, and exactly. the guy's like, uh, no, I think they're all the same. <laughs> and that though is like a classic conventional response yeah. to maybe some group pressure. Yeah. Conventional, early conventional, again, I'm talking ego development. That's Jane Lovinger for you listeners out there. Her book's called Ego Development, written in 1976. Love it. Yeah. But they, she would say, well, yeah, early conventional is don't rock the boat. Hmm. fit in it's only in late conventional where someone's going to be like ah i don't know and post-conventional like what you're doing you're like looking at the whole system and saying yeah that's interesting why do they do that yeah yeah and that's a huge part i mean we are really fragile creatures right we're going through this whole it's a demolition derby experience of life you know yeah. there's just all kinds of stuff can happen to us and we need some shared beliefs to make us feel a little more certain. Sure, and um, also one of the reasons was, uh, was that there's this book called uh, The Myth of Mental Illness by Thomas Sass. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's highly controversial book, but some of the claims that he makes are interesting. He says, uh, if I'm not wrong, he says the problems that people face are not mental, but problems of day-to-day -day living. And um, that also was like, well, that's something I, again, I find fascinating. It's like, if I'm a religious person, everything is like 
colored from the perspective of religion i see god's magic and like all the stuff but the moment like you ask question start questioning these beliefs people tend to get clingy because their psychological uh wellness i would say which predicated on having their belief systems in place or it's not only with the religious people it's everybody has this sort of belief systems if it is not religious it could be political it could be something else but they need some sort of belief systems to make sense of the world so that they themselves can be psychologically healthy and make sense of things that are happening around them but what like but the question that i have asked is like so these belief systems have a function and people who are seen as depressed or with bipolar disorder usually have post this belief system they have questioned each and every belief systems they cannot find uh, one belief systems to guide things in their social environment so um the question is are these people who are facing problems in living uh are they more functional in some sense than the other people and because of the majority of the people are less functional they just get shunned out yeah because uh, i mean it's not all bad i mean uh, they tend to be highly creative also uh the um, uh, so it's not if you look at some of the great musicians and artists they did have some sort of mood disorders and stuff like that uh so they tend to produce immense amount of um creative uh, output so that kind of makes me think that they kind of might be more functional than the normal people out there i don't know what to make uh how to make sense of that well i think uh thomas saws is a great talking point because he was i mean you, you know i would just say he was really a badass debater <laughs> I, i saw him at the evolution of psychotherapy conference a couple times okay i would never want to debate him because he would just rip me to shreds and he was really brilliant one guy in the audience said you know i mean he was he was kind of playing the devil's advocate position yeah. and saying well how do you even define mental what is mental yeah. and he said these are problems in daily living yeah and the guy said yeah but okay so you're you're not you're, you're even saying psychotherapy is a myth but you yourself take money from people to talk to them and he says yeah i take their money if they think talking to me is going to help them with a problem in daily living i'm I, it's a transaction and but i tell them i'm not well, you don't have a mental illness and i'm not doing psychotherapy we're we're talking and it's like okay i'm not going to argue the terms um he talked about people who suffer like a mood disorder or bipolar 1 many times they seem creative and more insightful you know we have like i said about a dozen theories of why people get depressed i i'm going to after studying all of these disorders i will bet the bank disorders like schizophrenia bipolar 1 disorders mm. are rooted in our physiology mm. we just haven't figured it out yet yeah um but it puts them outside the mainstream outside the group consensus and one of the ways to survive when you're kind of just by dint of having these symptoms outside is to question well hey yeah. you know that stuff you're talking about isn't necessarily <laughs> so yeah there's a there's a theory of depression called an existential theory of depression yeah. and it's when people are living inauthentically Yeah. So we talk about a golden handcuff job. Yes. I had a client, he was telling me, "Yeah, I hate my job, but I'll be vested in 8 years." Mm. And I'm like, "That's great, but what if you die in 6 years?" You know, uh yeah. there's a trade-off here. Yes. You know, uh relationship issues. People are like, "Uh, oh, I had red flags early on in this relationship. I should get out of this relationship." 
And I'm like, well, so where did that go? Well, Christmas was coming. I didn't, you know, want to be alone with the holidays. I yeah. didn't want them to be alone with the holidays. I'm like, okay. And then it, and it goes and it goes. And then they get comfortable. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a golden handcuff situation. And the depression in those instances is hypothesized to emerge from just living a way that isn't at all happy for you. Yes. I've heard psychotherapy described as a way to help people get unstuck, mm. essentially. And, you know, that kind of makes me think what we're talking about. So somebody with depression or who has a history of it or is experiencing depressive symptoms or really just about any psychopathology, um, the physiological component would be that um, their sympathetic nervous system is probably activated in some way, more so than like a quote-unquote normal person. And we know that that is predictive of um, deficits in emotion regulation. So let's say someone is stuck in this you know, golden handcuff kind of situation where there is some situation out there that might be better for them in which they would be happier. And who knows, maybe it means they're making less money. Maybe they would be making more money. We don't even know. But how are you going to get to that when you're going to have to negotiate these situations in which you're going to have to regulate emotions that are going to be triggered by making these changes and you're already like operating at a deficit? So is psycho therapy then some way to help somebody kind of like negotiate these difficult emotional times that they might have to get through to get to a point where they're actually doing whatever it is that you know maybe that would be resonating with them a lot more and in which they wouldn't be depressed yeah and uh, urban yalom has a great book called existential psychotherapy yeah i mean i'm i'm all about existentialism <laughs> yeah i could tell I mean, a fellow a fellow journey over there <laughs> yeah but yeah he would say yeah when a person who's existentially depressed starts thinking of making changes they're going to get anxious so you got to help them regulate the anxiety and not treat it as another symptom yeah it's a symptom of contemplating freedom in that case and the stress of that's going to release cortisone corticosterone and another theory of depression is excess of stress hormones because they damage neuronal axons and so that if not regulated could actually exacerbate the depression hmm. so yeah he's going to say every step of the way you're teaching them how do I regulate my emotional responses to something I've never done before which is scary but you can survive you can endure being scared there's um this longitudinal study that Harvard's been doing since I'm pretty sure like either the late 30s or early 40s and wow. and, um, and they started with two cohorts one was I believe students at Harvard at the time, the other one were people in Boston and, and in like an inner city environment. And what they're trying to get at is what makes people happy, hmm. which seems to be pretty essential if you are suffering from a mental illness, like you probably want to get to that point, you're not happy. And um, you know what they found was they, the, like they've kept this going up to this day. They followed people that I think were in their early 20s at the time um, throughout their lifetimes, began studying their children, their grandchildren, just trying to find out like what's common amongst these two communities as far as contributing to happiness. And what they found was that it's essentially having strong, healthy relationships mm -hmm. with people and I'm spacing on the other one, but I, I think that that was pretty much the big one. Like that seemed to just kind of like cover everything. Like if you are like feel connected to other people and you have good relationships, it can really 
sort of um, it can be a protective factor against a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, um, I find this concept of happiness also very. I thought you might, because I I always <laughs> question it, and I was like, yeah. okay, yeah, let's, let's uh, go there. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's very hard. I've heard arguments that says that you cannot be happy, but happiness is like a byproduct. The more you try to zero in on it, the more you lose it. But the more you try to like live authentically and just struggle through life, happiness just comes as a byproduct of it. So uh, it's like one of the now we have people like positive psychologists who are trying to study happiness. But my question with them is like, how do you do you think it can be defined and it can be thought about um, in the terms that you think about? Because every person will have a different version of their own happiness. And we have these countries, right? There are surveys like, this is the most happiest country in the world and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, how did you define happiness? It's, uh, uh, it, then they say, that, oh no, it's uh, how well they live, how good they eat, how well the medical um, uh, facilities there are in those countries. And it's like, that still is not happiness for me. I mean, you could live a f fantastic, you could eat nutritional food, you could have the fantastic medical facilities. You could have uh, basic income. You don't have to work, but that still would not uh, make people happy. Um, I think back to some of the existential quotes by Dostoevsky. And he talks about the fact that if you give people everything, like all the cakes to eat and make them uh, tell them you don't have to do anything but... Uh, you know, find all the pleasures in the world. He says the fact that people would just be miserable, so that they could insert their own free will, and uh, just so that they could have some drama in their life. I think it's from Notes from the Underground. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, blanking on it, uh, the exact uh, paragraph. But I kind of feel that that's that's the case. It's like you can provide all the material pleasures in the world, but it's a uh, it's going to unless people live like individually live an authentic life it's happiness is going to be a problematic thing well, I, had a, I had a client ask me because they're like what is happiness <laughs> Where, what is this about what is happiness and I said well, I said it's like using the restroom if it happens <laughs> once or twice a day that's great but the more you try to make it happen the harder it's going to be <laughs> and the more complicated it's going to get and it was like you know yeah I, I like I like this this longitudinal study sounds fascinating and I know relationships figure into it yeah and I know like they say countries like the Netherlands they measure it by these kind of economic socioeconomic things but yeah so I guess we call it a mood state of satisfaction or feeling upbeat about one's life right yeah so it's, I, it gets murky really fast uh, and that's my uh, that's my main problem with this whole happiness studies is like you, you don't have this conception like it's like asking uh like meaning of life it's like uh it's something that each it's up to each person to individually find meaning in their lives it's for them to make meaning in their life how they see it fit yeah and happiness is going to be a byproduct of that um, uh, if you just provide them with uh, material stuff, it's just more stuff for them to think about and consume. But it's not; it's it will increase their pleasure, but it's not going to be making them happy in the long term. And that's that's what it feels to me. I might be wrong on this. Well, I think for somebody with depression, you know, I mean, if you know, it seems that you know, if you have 
you know, good connections with people in your life and you generally feel yeah. safe and your sympathetic nervous system is calmed down because there's safety in the relationships that you have and you're doing something that provides some kind of, you know, meaning in your life, whatever that is, you're, you're probably going to be generally feel better more often a than big, not. A big, yeah. um, but to somebody who's clinically depressed, who is in a state of sympathetic activation, who um, probably is filled with negative beliefs about themselves and the world, to describe, to lay that out, like, here's what you need to do to be happy, it might sound like climbing Mount Everest or just yeah. seem like that's mm -hmm. like a million light years away. That's something that, who me, I could never do that, you know? And it's yeah. like, I think that that's why it's maybe very difficult for people to get out of that because, I mean, there's the physiological component where it's like, okay, um, you're... You know, your frontal lobe is probably um, not operating at, at full capacity where you can see things, you can make rational decisions and you're looking at things objectively because of, you know, physiologically what's happening with you. And then to try to help that person believe and like get the hope piece that, oh yeah, you could get out of this. Mm. Um, yeah, and it might be some work, but it's going to be worthwhile. Like they might not even be able to believe that it's worthwhile or that they could do it. When, if you look at, again, a theory of depression, a physiological theory, there's no psychological kind of precursor, there's no trauma, they just, people start having this depressed feeling. And it's marked by what we call the vegetative symptoms. Mm. So they're more physiological, eating or sleeping too much or too little, uh, loss of libido, yeah. um, and then what we call... Um, Oh, Jimmy, come on. Jimmy's my brain. Anhedonia. Anhedonia, yeah. yeah. Loss of pleasure. Yeah. But, okay, we know antidepressants work best for people with those symptoms. Yeah. So that's where, okay, the doctor will probably jumpstart them with an antidepressant. And, you know, when you go from not being able to get out of bed to, like, ah, I can get out of bed, they feel different, and different might be better enough to get to that next step. Yes. But, you know, the... the these are, I think these these have been debated these these ideas for millennia. Yeah. There's a I, I think it's a poem by Edward Arlington Robinson, Richard Corey. Whenever Richard Corey went to town, the people on the sidewalk looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, great splendor and imperiously thin. And it goes on about hey he has everything you know. And then it, in the end, he blows his brains out. <laughs> and you know it's the same. Yeah, everyone's wondering this guy had everything. How could he kill himself and well, that's not what it's about. You know, there's more to life. Yes, I would guess so. Do you want to talk about Stanislav? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, as you know, there's a, a doctor from Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic now. Um, yeah. Stanislav Grof, he was an early researcher, um, studied the effects of LSD as a treatment for psychological trauma. Um, he also believes that you know, some of these therapeutic states can even be achieved without LSD through, you know, what he coined uh, holotropic breath work. Mm. Um, a lot of this is getting more attention lately. There's more clinical trials happening with um, psychedelic substances as, you know, for as therapies for, yeah. um, for depression, anxiety, addiction. Um, do you see these, or I should say, what roles do you see these methods playing in counseling as we move forward? And... Uh, aside from the obvious uh, legal uh, roadblocks. Oh, I'm so glad you brought it up because I'm a huge, I've studied Groff's, everything he's ever done, mm -hmm. and I'm a huge uh, fan. 
I think there are some methodological questions later in his career, but yeah, he was brought by the U.S. government to do LSD psychotherapy studies, and um, the best book of his is Beyond the Brain, because he was trained as a psychoanalyst, and then where he was in the uh, former Czechoslovakia, they got samples of LSD-25 from Sandoz Laboratories, and they said, well, we think it's psychotomimetic, it'll give you like a mimic psychosis so you might be able to get inside it and he had this he was like an atheist at the time but he had this mystical experience <laughs> he said he was transported into a states of consciousness he could barely contemplate and this was what got him going on on the work and of course then the government was shutting down all of it because a like the mk ultra studies and the cia studies showed you couldn't use it to brainwash people that was what they hoped <laughs> and then it was getting out of hand as an unsupervised party drug so I never thought I'd see in my lifetime medication-assisted psychotherapy with Schedule One substances, and I'm really gratified that people are doing those now. Yeah. Uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies (MAPS). We, one of my, I'm very, I, I try to support them, and I was, I think, I'm proudest of my written works of the psychopharmacology book I did with Carl Rack. We have a chapter on this, and at first the publisher was going nuts. They're like, the, and the, the reviewers, oh, these are illegal drugs. And I'm like, no, no, every sentence in there is footnoted and referenced. And we went back and forth. And they were like, no, you're right. Okay, these are peer-reviewed studies. And okay. And as far as I know, it's the only psychopharm book with a chapter covering it. I think that this will be momentous for our field if we can keep it supervised. And, of course, that's, you know always hard to do but you make it a schedule two substance you create a special license like you do for buprenorphine you know only certain people can work with it and then you've got to create protocols how is this best done you know and usually you're only talking one or two sessions with the actual drug and then anywhere from six to ten for follow-up but again in an altered state uh things like lsd psilocybin dmt peyote Ayahuasca, they're mm. consciousness expanders, like alcohol is a consciousness constrictor. Yeah. In a consciousness expander, you see things about yourself and about life that you can't unsee when the drug wears off. Yes. So it gives you, again, for helping to make things psychological objects of awareness, it's a chemical express lane, right? And that was what Groff said. He said, man, decades of psychoanalysis might be compressed into a six-month period of therapy with one drug-induced trip at the beginning so i am cautiously optimistic that we will get more people get get more people permission to study it from the study create protocols that can then be replicated and you know i never thought i'd see ketamine trials and now they've just approved a nasal spray that has ketamine in it because in a significant number of people uh intravenous ketamine can get rid of treatment resistant depression in like a half an hour Hmm. It could last for a few days, for three weeks. So the VA, the Cleveland Clinic, they all had ketamine infusion programs, but no one's done it with talk therapy. And so that's the key, like with Groff's work. I've done the holotropic breath work, and they don't even want you to start talking for a while. So you're doing rapid, intense breathing to this intense music, and people will do body work on you if you want them to, you know, because you'll start, like, parts of your body will start tensing, and then they'll help you move through it. And then afterward, they would have us draw mandalas and just say whatever whatever comes into your mind. But why, they, why mandalas? Uh, because 
everyone can draw a circle and fill it in with images and people who are not visually artistically gifted don't feel as uh, threatened you know they can just like yeah I'm just gonna make color and it's a somewhat Rorschach type technique where people might then project into the images aspects of the experience that they can then look to to apply what they've learned about themselves in the experience and and Graf would say language is like a entomologist's killing jar when you put an experience into language you've already kind of dismantled <laughs> it somehow yeah I guess so. this sounds very fascinating the reason I asked about Mandela is because uh, for e uh, like for uh, thousands of years Mandela is considered to be a holy symbol in Indian culture it's uh, it's worshipped like if how cross is a holy symbol mandala is a holy symbol and uh, carl jung uh, he 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 used to draw out his um, whatever visions that he apparently had and I, i don't uh, and he kind of uh, came upon uh, he kind of came upon this idea that this, there was something archetypal uh, about this mandala this it, it contains some collective unconscious wisdom in it So I was I was just wondering if uh, when people are under this uh, uh, in this state, is is it the, is it, is this the symbol that they go to, and does does the symbol convey something to them? I'm not sure. It, uh, it is a reason Graf also yeah. chose the mandala because of its sacred um, history. Yeah. I just I just finally got a hold of a copy of Jung's Red Book. Yeah, that's uh, and. I saved up these Amazon gift cards forever and ever, and I'm just getting into it. But yeah, it is filled with these brilliant mandalas. Yes, um, apparently that book is uh, very jarring to read. I've not read it. That's what I heard. I've been, I've so been warned against. Uh, people who have read it has said that they had nightmares. So I believe that. I've been warned. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he's a fascinating thinker, Carl Jung. I mean, again, he gets a lot of flack for being unscientific. Maybe rightly so, but um, I think we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't uh, just uh, dispose all of his ideas. He was a deep thinker. Yes, uh, and you know I thought this the guy who edited the Red Book. I'm blanking on his name, but people recommended read the book he wrote first, yeah. and it's called uh, Carl Jung: The A Dream of Science. Huh. And he's trying to show how the art and the science were brought together in Machi Jung's work. Hmm. So I'm also reading that as a prep while I'm kind of going through the pictures, and I'll get to the text after that. Um, but yeah, you know, there are a lot of problems with Jung's ethics and his relations with clients, blah blah yeah. blah. And no, you know, it's like there were also strokes of brilliance in much of his of, of his work. Yeah, his uh, he there were ethical problems with the way he treated his clients. I'm aware of that. But But it's like it's like anything else. We're we're you know Carl Rogers drank a bottle of vodka a day, <laughs> and you know he said don't put that in the biography until like I've been dead for I forget how many years, yeah. and then the life of Carl Rogers, uh, the, the the author finally put it in, and I'm like whoa, a bottle of I mean that's a he was just sip through the day, not you know necessarily get hammered, but he was like under the influence in a lot of the films I've seen of him working. Hmm. And it's just like, you know, I guess it's better to walk with a crutch than not walk at all. But we've all got shadow stuff that we have to deal with. I want to go back to the, there's something that I wanted to go over with, like the topic of mental illness. And um, it seems like we're beginning to kind of look at mental illness as more um, on a spectrum, kind of like with autism. 
um, rather and than schizophrenia. Yeah, rather than just this, um, it's like, okay, uh, do you meet you meet four of the nine criteria for depression, so you have crossed the threshold, you have clinical depression, or you didn't, so you don't, um, which I think it just seems much more intuitive that, yeah, that could happen in, in like varying degrees. So is there any, you know, talk in the field about adopting more of a, like a, a spectrum kind of... Um, mindset for other disorders within mm. the DSM? Well, this is a great question because DSM-5 was controversial in many ways. Yeah. One of which, though, they did want to take certain disorders and use continua so that a person could be rated along a continuum or multiple continua and that that would feed into the diagnosis. And there was clinicians, we think that way, and there was a good deal of support in the research but the insurance companies are like, uh, you can do it, but we ain't going to pay for it. And so that, that killed the idea outright. Um, the psychodynamic diagnostic manual, which, again, it's not going to get reimbursed for by insurance, uh, but many of the disorders are framed that way. However, there has been a shadow side to this, like the pharmaceutical companies for years tried to push a bipolar spectrum. It was falsified by Alan Francis's team in DSM-4, chucked it out was falsified in DSM-5. They checked it out. They said, this, you know, from cyclothymia to bipolar 2 to bipolar 1, as all the evidence suggests it does not occur on a spectrum. Unlike, we got the schizophrenia spectrum and the autism spectrum, which we had support for. But the shadow side is the pharmaceutical companies were pushing for it big time because they wanted children... Well, we don't have evidence for pediatric bipolar 1 disorder. Early onsets, age 13... And they were giving kids the diagnosis of bipolar 1 disorder and cranking them up on meds as early as age 4 or 5. You know, and in, in the TED Talk, I'm like, well, what exactly does a manic toddler look like? I mean, they all kind of look manic, and then they fall asleep and, you know. But they were pushing it, and they were saying agitation and aggression would be the quote-unquote mild end of the spectrum. Ah, uh, no. You have to have evidence of sustained euphoria um, or grandiosity to make the diagnosis of bipolar one. And in many of these kids, they were traumatized. They were, many of them were in foster care. They did not have socioeconomic means. And they were put on a cocktail of medications whose side effects were far more problematic than the aggressive outbursts that they were trying to quell. So DSM-5 addressed this by saying, okay, we're separating the bipolar and the depressive disorders. We're getting rid of mood disorders. And they inserted disruptive mood dysregulation disorder for these developmentally uncharacteristic tantrums, aggressive acting out. And so we got, we, we got to quit using the bipolar one for that sort of thing. Now, of course, the question is, will they treat them any different with dysphoric mood dysreg or disruptive mood dysregulation? But at least they recognized, yeah, this is a problem. And that's where like a spectrum would not have served clients uh, very well, but it would have enriched the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I went off a left turn there. but No, no. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because I, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that have the symptoms of anxiety or the symptoms of depression, but don't quite meet the clinical um, threshold for um, either of those. But they're having a really hard time, though, you know, yeah. and, and, which kind of makes me wonder. Um, I think the number I've heard is that at, at any given time, about a quarter of the population has a diagnosable mental illness. And I kind of wonder, like, well, what happens when you 
um, consider all the people who are just sub threshold. Like, what does that percentage like go to then? You know, um, yeah. This is a really good, really good point, and it's that idea of these thresholds, whether it's on a continuum or four out of nine of these symptoms. You know, sub threshold problems can be treated very effectively. Yeah, but of course, it's not going to be reimbursed probably by insurance. And I think we, we do a disservice if we think of those thresholds as these very clear black and white things, because what you're saying is true. So many people, they would be sub-threshold according to a diagnostic manual, but they're suffering. And our goal is to alleviate suffering through the application of the talk therapy modalities. Hmm. And something that, that I've wondered about is... Um, like the like throwing the term functional in front of um, a mental disorder. So you know somebody who's a, a functional um, like substance user, a functional or, alcoholic, yeah, functional alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> I have functional depression. Where it's kind of like they're in this gray area where it's like well to meet the one of the criteria for having a diagnosable mental illness is that it you know disrupts your daily functioning. But what if you're functioning but you're just in hell while you're doing it? You know. Mm. Yeah. And maybe it's been happening for a long time, and it's not just you know like an adjustment disorder where it's been hey it's this has happened for a few months, but you got through it. Right. I just yeah, uh, yeah something I think about. Yeah, and I don't know that story about Carl Rogers. You know, clearly alcohol dependent, clearly functioning on some level. Yeah. And his family was you know very concerned, but they couldn't say, you know, uh, for. Like mental disorders, we say it has to cause distress or impairment, or a DSM-5 says distress and disability. But they couldn't say he was distressed about it. Uh, well, many people who are alcohol-dependent aren't. But they also said, you know, it wasn't like he was driving drunk, you know, but it was obviously affecting his health. So how do we, how do we intervene in those cases? It's, it's hard to say. <laughs> It's easy to say. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. It's kind of a cop-out, but I, I appreciate the point you raise. Yeah. That Carl Rogers, uh, tidbit about Carl Rogers is fascinating. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't either. Yeah. Yeah, it was only in the latest version of his biography, The Life of Carl Rogers, that the time frame had elapsed that the biographer could then share that. So to jump back at kind of where we were at, um, sure. you know, you'd mentioned spirituality. How does that play a role in, in clinical mental health counseling? You know, it's, it's fascinating. I think much of what you've said, you know, we know having a shared belief system and a community of practice, that second part's important, hmm. can be a buffer because those interpersonal relationships, you know, they bring us a lot of psychological advantages. Yeah. Um, Jung had a concept he called the concept of the numinous yeah. and numinosity, something that is unique and appealing and it, it shifts the psychological functioning in some people so there's an interesting correlate in um, genetics uh, Ernest Rossi who wrote a book called the psychobiology of gene expression he was a scientist who studied genetics and he was a, a psychotherapist and I got to hear him too at this evolution of psychotherapy conference he said that uh, genes can switch on and off in about three speeds. One in as quick as 90 minutes, and the other is kind of locked into the lifespan. You know, like, why is my hair going gray and falling out, and my testosterone is dropping, and I'm getting arthritis? All of that's just locked in. But he said, numinous experiences, and they've studied this in, in uh, monkeys, 
and they're extrapolating to humans, so there's always that caveat. But that can change gene expression when these animals were exposed to something that was sensorially so different, it really grabbed their attention. Now, like James Joyce would say, if a person's held in aesthetic arrest at the sheer beauty of something, that's a numinous experience. For Ernest Rossi, it was he was visiting what was kind of a cult, but the whole thing was set up there with these very attractive people in this, this kind of flowing like clothing and they were serving tea and there was flute music. And he said, I didn't believe any of the stuff they were saying, but it was a wonderful experience just being in this place and sipping tea. And, you know, so he said, that's the kind of numinosity people, you can have that in a psychotherapy session. And it can be healing and, and, and with most of these, we don't really know why. There's so, something about, um, sorry, there's something about like being brought into the present moment in a way that is um, unordinary. And, you know, that makes me think about how big mindfulness is now, where oh, it, yeah. it almost just seems like you're working the muscle of bringing your attention back to the present moment over and over and over again. You realize you're thinking, you're lost in a train of thought. Oh, I noticed it. I don't normally do that. Hey, good thing that I noticed it, bringing the attention back. And yeah, like, so it seems that yeah, there's there's probably some connection there in that, okay, you could have some like experience that's just so intense, it can't help but bring your attention into the present moment. That seems to be a good thing. You kind of want to be in the present moment, especially if you're, you know, like functioning, you know, optimally and or in a way that you want to be, like you're probably paying close attention to what's going on around you and you're not too busy being worried about the future or depressed about, you know, what you don't have anymore that you did in the past or something like that. Um, yeah. Um, so I have a question. Um, the word spirituality sticks in my throat. Uh, what I mean, I've heard uh, that it is a positive thing and stuff like that. But again, it's very hard for me to kind of pinpoint and say uh, something is as a spiritual experience. Uh, what what suggestions would you give for somebody who's like completely materialistic in their thinking and scientific and all that stuff it's like all that spiritual stuff sounds like woo woo right yeah, yeah so sure uh, so it's like uh somebody and as somebody who has been like exposed to bad examples of people who are talking about spirituality and i won't name names here but uh no and i've, I've had similar experiences and like you i'll yeah. keep the names out of it but yeah 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 but you just get put off by that and it, it, then anything else is like this this like rats who like eat something and they found find that to be problematic and they just won't go and touch that food ever again even if the rest of the food mm. is fine right so i've been like just disenchanted by some of the stuff that happened in the spirituality and uh I'm, and it's very hard for me to come back again to this concept and uh, at least believe that people have spiritual experience or like it could be uh i would say uh, uh, or, or it could be something that is positive uh, how how, what recommendations would you have for people like them? For you and, and people who share like our interest in existentialism, I would recommend Robert Solomon's wonderful book, Spirituality for Skeptics. Okay. And he, again, he looks at it as being able to experience transcendence. Yeah. Whether that is a neurological phenomenon or a psychological or both, you don't have to call it a religious or a spiritual insight. And he said, and it may be, I don't believe it is, it may be. So one of my ancestors is Robert Green Ingersoll, who was 
the great agnostic of the 19th century. Okay. You should check his stuff out because he was a free thinker and he would fill opera houses speaking eloquently and just blasting religion and the, the, the harmful uses of religion. And even like preachers who were, he was lashing out at, they said, you can't help like, but like the guy because he speaks so brilliantly. And I got to go and speak and sing some songs at a dedication of a statue of him in Peoria, Illinois, where it was a statue that was uh, damaged and then rehabbed. And I met a bunch of people from the Freedom From Religion Foundation, mm -hmm. and they will like litigate if, if, a, if a government puts up the Ten Commandments on a government site, they'll say, well, we're going to have a statue of Satan here, too, because, you know, <laughs> we fair time. And, and, and I like the work they do, and I loved a lot of the people I met, but they were way too serious for me. And it was not the founders, but just some of the people I'd met in the course of my travels in atheists and agnostic communities, they're angry. They've huh. been hurt, yes. and I get that. But I'm also like, I'm a possibilist. I can't, I can map a neuron for you, but I can't even tell you how light bulbs work. So I am open, you know, so that's, it's fine. So I will, if it's a client, I'll meet the client where they're at. I'll language things in a way that they're comfortable with. But I've had many clients say, are you born again? Hmm. And I'll say, I will answer your question, but can you tell me why it's important first? And usually if I can facilitate the therapeutic relationship when they're telling me why it's important, when I tell them I'm not, um, often they had stayed with me. So, you know, I'm saying I be a think possibilist. You, you could look at yeah, be a possibilist. You can look at it from an existential view. Uh, William James had a descriptive approach yeah. to re religion, the varieties of religious experience, and he's like, he's saying, I, "Hey, I'm not going to try to ontologically say I know where this comes from, but look at what people experience." Yeah. Now, Freud was kind of explaining it away, like in Totem and Taboo and Moses and Monotheism. And, and he had good reason to be hostile to religion because, you know, the Jewish population where he was living at that time, the religious institutions were very hard on them. So I get that. Yeah. But I think if I meet the client where they're at, I'm, you know, I'm more often than not going to find that they're usually in a healthy, for them, a healthy community and mm -hmm. they can use it as a support. And if it's not a healthy community, we might be able to make that an object of awareness and then they can say, well, where could I find a healthy one? Hmm. I like the word possibilism. Uh, I think David Eagleman talked about it in his TED Talk Yeah. about possibilism. I think that... Who, who was that? David Eagleman. Ah, okay. So, um, I think that's that's where I heard. I think he said he coined the term. I don't know. Uh, so... So you're talking about your therapy. So I found on your website that you do something called integral psychotherapy. So what's, uh, what is integral psychotherapy and how is it different from other therapies? You know, I was in a think tank for a long time, the Integral Institute think tank. Um, and I, I met my mentor in ego development, Suzanne Cook-Greuter, mm. through that. And it was, that's been a wonderful relationship. I left the think tank, though, because I found it was getting, it was way, getting way too much pop psychology yeah. and not enough into, you know, what is actually empirically validated. Yes. So I now just say that I work in an integrative model that tries to look at, you know, if you want to say the body, emotional health, the mind-brain relationship, and if there's a spiritual component for the client or if for me you know, moments of numinosity or transcendence or making meaning. Hmm. So, 
I'm not really so much as tied to the integral uh, theory as I used to be. Okay. Uh, so, do you want to ask about the undergrads question? Uh, yeah. Um, we're kind of jumping all over the place. Um, that happens a lot with me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> classic baby boomer ADHD brain here. <laughs> well, I think like we're also not asking our questions in, in the order that we have them yeah. on the paper, but that, it's fine. But... Um, so what is, um, what's the major contributor to mental illness, biology or social, economical environment? Yeah. I, I, my research would say it depends on the symptoms. So anxiety disorders, uh, depressive disorders are highly overdetermined, and the theories of their ideology range from everything from something physiological that you can fix with an increase of brain-derived neurotrophic factor that is a side effect of antidepressants to the existential depression that I talked about a little bit earlier. Mm. And, you know, you're looking at nature-nurture balances and those types of things. But, you know, okay, schizophrenia. There is a study, a series of studies, where, and again, this sounds like magic to me because I don't know how they do it. They can take skin cells from a person afflicted with schizophrenia, skin cells from someone who's so-called, again, air quotes, normal, and then they can use a chemical function in a Petri dish to turn them into stem cells. And then they can instruct the stem cells to grow into neurons. Hmm. And then they can look at how the stem cells from the skin of a person suffering from schizophrenia and the stem cells come neurons of the skin of someone who's so-called normal, grow, gather resources, branch out, and the cells from the people suffering from schizophrenia are far less proficient at getting nutrients, at forming dendritic branches and connections with other cells. That's interesting. And that clearly would point to more of a physiological Basis. something. Yeah. Right? Um, we have a thing called optogenetics where you can infect a neuron with the DNA that makes them grow light sensitive proteins and they do this in mice now. So you condition fear in the mouse and then you and their brain grows light sensitive proteins on neurons related to the fear circuit and then they put an op, uh, optic filament in their skull that will flash light and I think uh, a a green light, the neurons with the light sensitive proteins, the green light causes them to inhibit. And I think it's a blue light excites them. So when they flash the green light, the mice will walk across a line they've been conditioned to be terrified of, show no fear response. And that again, it's just like, okay, pharmacology is like a, it's gonna hit everything in your brain. If we find ways to start narrowing down what part of the brain we affect, Maybe that is, a, is also a new way to look at a physiological variables, underlying disorders, and how to treat them. I kind of digress there. but So, so I, how much do you think uh, it's like the mental illness stuff is like based in actual physiology as compared to the social environment? Do you think there is, there is like a loop there where maybe social environments could cause changes in physiology or um, there is a potential uh, for expression of these types of... Uh, genes and the social uh, environment could like help them uh, be expressed and if we just created a better social environment for people maybe people who are at 
risk for these types of mental illness those genes might never be expressed do you think that's the case Um, well, th those are functional theories that are the whole basis of early childhood mental health and mm. we have an early childhood mental health certificate in our uh, programs and the idea is that we know there is genetic vulnerability to things like schizophrenia substance use disorders and then if you take kids who are genetically vulnerable and who are also in dire economic socioeconomic strata and you put as many buffers around them mm -hmm. and increase healthy interactions and the ability to associate with children who are at least free to feel safe enough to play that you can then probably you're inducing psychological and physiological changes that will further buffer them mm. so there are a lot of theories being supported in that very vein so the social context and the environment in which people are brought and brought up does affect at least to some extent um uh, how people uh, how mental illness acts out in people yeah okay yeah it's 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 again this is like a nature nurture thing and there are some people who believe everything is nature like mostly it's guided in genetics but there are some people who also believe that it's not genetics but it's like the social environment that causes um people well, i i think one of the best developments of the 21st century is that like hybrid model. the uh, national institute of mental health is no longer just using dsm diagnoses to study these disorders they're using the research domain criteria which actually requires teams of scientists worldwide some are looking at schizophrenia from a cellular genetic perspective some are looking at it from a molecular brain circuitry perspective some are looking at it from a behavioral and so there's these great matrices on the national institute of mental health website and every time a study confirms a link you know you see like an x oh we've got five studies that show a link between genetic vulnerability and the development of the disorder but you've got to fill out each matrix and have somebody then people who can actually see the forest as well as the researchers who can do the studies yeah. on the individual trees. Yeah. So that's one of the upsides of uh, not thinking from diagnostic categories and of information explosion. So we might get a whole different view. Like now, all of the research we've got is supporting the connection of gut bacteria to things like anxiety and depression via the vagus nerve. Yeah. And the studies are, are pretty strong. <laughs> So, well, I mean, bringing it back to the holotropic breath work, it's kind of like, I mean, it seems like there's, you know, a lot of uh, people that are focusing on just focusing on your breath and breathing. I mean, kind of like with the mindfulness thing, is that being something that can improve vagal tone? You know, like if you breathe a certain way, then you're, you get more parasympathetic, less sympathetic, you're calmed down and you know, reduces symptoms of anxiety. Um, and then, yeah, so, I mean, somehow that must connect with the gut and then yeah. it, it suggests that it does. And then, you know, the vagus nerve. Same with exercise, right? Yeah. We know it facilitates a lot of psychological functions and wellness, but, yeah. you know, what are the vehicles? What are, how does it do it? Yeah, I was just reading something, um, doing a literature review, and um, I think it was about something to do with emotion regulation, and, and the conclusion was that the best way to regulate a bad mood is exercise, you know, paired with you know, certain cognitive practices. Um, but, yeah, that just seems to be, you know, I mean, in my personal experience, I mean, that can kind of like 
it's incredible how that can sort of snap you out of something just like moving around and it's kind of like well i went from that to that in a span of like 10 minutes like okay (laughs) i would i often would refer once my clients had a doctor's permission to start an exercise program especially for depressed people i had a trainer i refer them to and then she would find out well what what will they enjoy doing it wasn't like you know i'm gonna punish you and make you do crossfit every day for five you know you know find something you enjoy and then help them learn how to do it the right way and let them go see what happens well i do enjoy crossfit though what's that i do enjoy i do find crossfit enjoyable though oh yeah i i had to quit it two and a half years ago because I had so much I've got a lot of spine injuries and arthritis and I just couldn't do it anymore but I still have trainers work me as close to that as they can because I need that yeah that's true so in your TED talk at one point you mentioned that um, as far as uh, psychopharmacology that we're medicating the symptom but we're not getting to the root and I, I think we've talked about this in various ways already but how do you get to that root or what is the root that's where an integrative approach does help um i had a client who met all the criteria for depression but like many people she lived uh, paycheck to paycheck had high balances on high interest rate credit cards um and, and, and was having a lot of uh collection agencies harass her and as we talked i just said you know there's this other person I'd like you to consult with and it was a credit counselor because my theory was she's again getting all these stress hormones that might be generating her depression or it might just be such a shitty way to live that would be depressogenic in and of itself so she got a payment plan with the credit counselor put together which got the collectors offer back and her symptoms dramatically decreased and I said yeah I don't think you need psychotherapy I think you just needed to get that situation under control so for her, yes, get to know people, use that therapeutic alliance. But then if you see something that's like, I'll bet if you got rid of that, you'd feel a lot better and then move in that direction. That's one way. So that, that was a problem in living and not a problem with yeah. coming back to SAS. Yeah, especially <laughs> in our society. God, the United States is like crazy society with the for-profit healthcare. Uh, and um, I'm not sure where that's all headed. Hmm. Do you have any opinions about that? I think it's very dangerous. And I, 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 I have lost my dad last year, and my mom is not doing well now. He was 94. He had a good life. She's 88, but just getting them services is so hard. Um, and, like, one doctor told my sister, well, I have my mom in a good place. It's only $4,000 a month. And my sister, very, very calm, centered person, I thought she was going to slug him. Because I'm like, yeah, who, it, yeah, yeah, we're not talking about $4,000 a month as disposable income here. Yeah. You know, but, but if people who have it are so disconnected from the needs of people who don't, you know, that that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the fact that I think somebody could just so matter-of-factly like spit that figure out and just think like oh everyone's got that lying around on their couch cushions like and what was there was a study is like a significant number of the population is like a thousand dollars away from a real crisis like they don't have a thousand dollars saved for whatever and so it was a lot so do you want to pivot to completely different um you can go ahead do you, you want to we've got the one at the bottom here um, I, I think we've pretty much touched on just about everything else. Yeah. Unless there's something on there that you want to ask. 
Now, just this is our last standard question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what advice would you have for somebody who is an undergraduate in psychology and who is an undergrad and considering majoring in psychology? Uh, are they thinking about getting into talk therapy or just psychology in general? Maybe psychology in general. Maybe they're talk thinking about counseling. And uh, like, do you prefer the word counseling or talk therapy? Uh, I, I try to use talk therapy because for me, psychotherapy counseling are synonymous. Okay. Um, but I know there's various opinions on that. But yeah, I mean, you can talk about uh, not. You can talk about counseling or talk therapy in general. Somebody who's who listens to this podcast and is fascinated and be like, I want to be like a letting or soul or something like that. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, they say the worst vice is advice. Um, but I, I really think, uh, and I don't mean to sound fiscally obsessed, but people do need to think about well, how do I want to live? Hmm. How much do I need to earn to live that way? Hmm. Versus do I have a strong sense of vocation, mission, purpose, right? Because I know people who get into a talk therapy field because they really feel a vocation toward it they have gifts for that person financial struggle is less of an issue they're willing to live that way for a while and get established other people they, they know they want to do it and they also know i mean you know i lived some pretty difficult years and having a toilet that flushes and a car that starts every time that is awesome and i was like <laughs> i never want to go without those things again so Thinking about money, it sounds cliche and very middle-aged, but I, I would really, that's why if you think about how, how much you have, have to make to live the way you want to live and how are you going to express your vocation, balancing those things out is vitally important. And I hope advisors, I know we talk about that with our students. Mm. And there's a lot of ways, you, like you can negotiate. We had a uh, guest speaker at our Chi Sigma IOTA event and he was saying you've always got to negotiate if you're taking employment. And even if you can't negotiate money, negotiate vacation days, because those are, you know, a resource. There's always wiggle room. And if you can't meet your needs, walk away. Hmm. Walk away. Yeah. Actuality implies probability. If you're being offered one position, you'll probably be offered another somewhere else. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good advice. I wish I'd, um, I had a very strong sense of vocation, so I'm kind of willing to live um like a moderate not a very uh i would say financially secure life but like i couldn't see myself doing anything else except for this so that's there you go <laughs> <laughs> it's like literally i cannot do anything else except and for doing research in psychology so and you will probably also see doors where people who are not as moved to do it won't see them yeah that's true I have really enjoyed talking <laughs> to you both. This has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. us. That was uh, that was very interesting.